Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns began in 1993 with support from University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And this morning, I'm delighted to welcome um, back some guests uh, to our studio to talk about Maine's farms and farms uh, f- food systems. Uh, that's the, really the work of Maine Farmland Trust, and I'm glad to have Amanda Beal, president of Maine Farmland Trust, join us for, for this. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you for having me. And you've brought some wonderful folks. Um, Erica Buswell, um, Vice President of Programs. Welcome to you, Erica. Thank you. Good morning. And a board member, Eleanor Kinney. Welcome to Talk of the Towns. Thanks, Ron. Yeah. And and uh, let's get a little background on each of you, and then we'll talk more about Maine Farmland Trust. Uh, Amanda, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to the work of Maine Farmland Trust. Sure, sure. So I, I guess I'll go way back and say that I grew up in a dairy farming family in Litchfield, and so I've been pretty intimately mm-hmm. uh, connected to uh, what's been going on in agriculture for most of my life here in Maine. And um, I later went to uh, pursue studies at Tufts. Uh, I did a master's at the Agriculture, Food, and Environment program there. Um, and I'm also a PhD candidate at the University of New Hampshire working on some agriculture-related research as well. And throughout that time, I've worked with a number of different organizations uh, throughout the state and regionally that are focused on agriculture, fisheries, and food systems. Mm. And when did you come to Maine Farmland Trust? I came to Maine Farmland Trust in 2015 as a a policy and research fellow. And uh, I obviously I've stayed and in uh, 2016, late 2016, I stepped into the role of president Mm, mm. I was uh, re- referring to the one of the originators of Maine Farmland Trust, Luana Perkins, and I understand that Luana still works for Maine Farmland she Trust. She does, and we're really fortunate oh, to have her. Great, a shout out to to her. She was a guest on Talk of the Towns early on in in our our um, formation, and uh, glad to to know that uh, this is all succeeded, and it's twenty years old this year. That's right. right. Well, next year, actually. next year. Okay, great, great. Um, Erica, a little bit about your background. Uh, um, how did you come to Maine Farmland Trust? Uh, Well, like many folks in my generation, I am a couple of family members removed from farming. Uh My dad grew up ranching, and both of my grandparents grew up ranching and farming. Um, But I did not have exposure to any kind of growing uh, as a young child. Mm. Uh, I have a religious studies degree. Uh, which is a field where not a lot of people can get a job after you graduate from college. And so I was sort of um, fishing around for opportunities after my studies and started working at the food co-op in Belfast. Uh And um, it was 
coincidentally also the time when the excitement and resurgence around local foods was was starting to build. Mm. And there I had an opportunity to interact with lots of farmers Mm. um, and support them with trying to encourage consumers to start eating more local food and was really looking for an opportunity to do more to indirect service to farmers and the opportunity to work at Maine Farmland Trust as a land protection Mm. professional came up um, in 2011 and that's when I took my chance to get involved with the organization. Great, great. Eller, a little bit about your background um, and how you uh, joined uh, Maine Farmland Trust as a board member. Sure. Well, I'm a longtime environmentalist and supporter of land conservation, and I uh, served eight years as on the board of Natural Resources Council of Maine, too, as president. And now I'm in my seventh year with Maine Farmland Trust. Um, for me, Uh, Farmland conservation has just become such an important pivot point for working on sustainable economic development in the state. And I run my own solar-powered organic farm in Bremen in the Pemaquid Peninsula where I'm raising my three kids. So I love living those values um, and advocating for farmland preservation and really see it as part of the future for the state, Mm -hmm. not just the past. Mm -hmm. That that notion of of, – Looking at farmland as a as a resource that's really important at the present, but for the future, is is critical. Tell us a little bit about the origins of Maine Farmland Trust and some of the the things that uh, stand out for for you as as an incoming president. Sure. Um, well, the organization was founded in 1999, um, and it really the catalyst for was you know the observation of a few farmers who recognized that some of the farmland in their community was starting to get bought up and developed, and they really uh, were very forward thinking and realizing that we needed to get out ahead of that trend. Um, and so now we're, we are the only land trust in the state that's solely focused on farmland protection. But I think it's important to note that we work with many local and regional land trusts, and, and that is really important for our success. Um, and they often protect farmland on their own, but also in partnership with us. And you know, it's it's great to work with them because they have a lot of local uh, knowledge and relationships that are key. And then Mean Farmland Trust can bring to the table um, real deep experience in working on farm-related issues. Uh, when we first started, our primary uh, focus was farmland protection. And over time, we developed an understanding that farm farmland access and farm viability are also key components to ensuring a vibrant agricultural economy. And so we've been growing over the years. We've had uh, a lot of growth recently in our farmland protection work, and I think that sort of corresponds with the rise in development pressure throughout the state. I think sometimes people think there's only development pressure in the south or on the coast, but we are working all over the state, and we're seeing that development pressure throughout the state. Um, And, you know, I think it's also important to note that meanwhile we're seeing a real downward trajectory of availability of public funds to protect farmland at both the state and federal level. So much of the work that we're doing relies on the support of members and key donors who really understand the importance of agriculture to Maine's economy and the multifaceted value that farms bring to our communities. Mm. So you mentioned access. um, That must have something to do with the generational change that's happening Who's, who's farming, who's leaving farming, and who wants to get in? Right, yeah. Uh, so we are seeing, uh, a, a, you know, out ahead, we're seeing about 400,000 acres of farmland that's likely to change hands in this decade. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is definitely creating a need for that generational succession to happen. 
and um, and we're also continuing to see interest from new farmers in mm-hmm. um, starting farms here in the state mm-hmm. of Maine. Maybe another um, kind of foundation piece for our discussion is is a, a, a quick profile of farming in Maine. Uh, what does it look like these days? Um, Maine used to be a breadbasket for all of New England. Um, probably is not now, but what's the, what's the sketch thumbnail sketch now? Yeah, yeah, but we could be again. Yes, I, I, yeah. I fully believe that. Um, but you know, at at current, we you know we have the ag census data that comes out every five years or so. And the, the last census in 2012 showed that we are continuing to increase the number of farms in the state, which is a great trend. We're also decreasing the average age of farmers, also a really good trend. Um, and we are expecting whenever the next census comes out, probably the data we'll see it sometime in 2018 or 2019, we are expecting to see those trends continued I can, just based on you know the work that we're doing and who's approaching us to work with us and also conversations conversations that we've had with other agricultural technical assistance providers throughout the state. Um, So we're we're still feeling that real interest and and traffic coming toward us, people looking for help with with the issues that we, we deal with. Um, we're also seeing a lot of growth still in sort of smaller diversified farms. Um, but one of the things I always like to point out is something that gets sort of lost in looking at the growth is that we are experiencing still some real challenges with our commercial scale dairy farms and we are continuing to lose those farms. Um, and that's really important for us to pay attention to because those farms really serve as an anchor for many kinds of services that other farmers rely mm. upon in the mm. communities that they're working in. So that by anchor, you're talking about um, the farms that buy agricultural equipment. Right. And that, um, large scale So vets all of that kind of creates, vets. yes, okay. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Um, and, you know, and, and the challenges that they're facing are really related to forces that are far beyond their control. You know, they're ex- experiencing a downward pressure in prices and um, saturation of the market from milk coming from other places in the U.S. and other countries. Um, and so, you know, there is there are some positives there, though. I mean, we do have some very resilient farmers that are making mm. it work and are doing a great job. And we're also starting to see, you know, trends around farmers doing more value-added uh, work with making cheese and bottling their milk and things like that. Um other commodities, uh, you know, we, we're just watching as like wild blueberry production is increasing, but the value of that crop is decreasing. And so that's been sort of a, a difficult, um, a difficult, uh, you know, just a challenge for our blueberry producers or wild blueberry producers. And then around potatoes, we are seeing that production and price levels have remained fairly consistent after a larger period of decline. So there seems to be some stability Mm. there at this point in time. We're seeing growing interest in grain production and hops and some other specialty crops. Um, But one of the growing needs that we're seeing is related to what you mentioned earlier, which is around helping farmers with farmland succession. And I know from my own experience working with my family around, you know, transitioning our dairy farm from one generation to the next, that some of these transitions can take decades Mm. and it's never too early to start working on Mm. farmland Mm. uh, succession planning. So... Yeah. Right. Erica, you you mentioned um, the resurgence of uh, local foods as one of the ways that you um, got into um, this work. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you kind of see the, the, the larger picture for the programs of Maine Farmland Trust. Perhaps you could describe how you kind of organize the work. Sure. 
Well, as Amanda mentioned, we originally started out doing farmland protection work, um, seeing this need to make sure that the the farmland that is very precious in our community was not converting to other types of, of land uses. Um, there's certainly been a trend uh, in New England and in other parts of the country where that development pressure has been very high and is continuing to increase, and Maine is certainly not immune to that trend. Um, so... Early on, we were, were interacting with these farmers who were interested in protecting their land, um, granting conservation easements on it, and many of them were coming to us and also expressing a desire for, for help with finding those successor farmers. So that is where the Main Farm Link program came from, part Farm of our land, Link. Main Farm Link, uh-huh. um, which is one of our, our flagship farmland access programs where we help farmers who are looking for land connect with people who have land to make uh-huh. available for farming. Um, and I think the, the farmland protection and farmland access work often go hand in hand. So increasingly, we are doing lots of conservation easement projects that involve some sort of succession element. And we're placing those easements on properties at the time that they are transitioning, which both helps the incoming farmer um, get access to that property because they are oftentimes not having to capitalize as much. They aren't having to pay full development price for the property, they're getting it at their protected value. So without getting awfully technical, right. how, how does a conservation easement work? What benefit does it have for the farmer and for the wider community? So a, a conservation easement is a permanent way to ensure that the land will not transition to non-agricultural uses. So it's a legal agreement that is made between the landowner and the land trust, like Maine Farmland Trust. Maine Farmland Trust acts as the holder of the conservation easement, meaning we steward the terms of the easement and ensure that they will be upheld no matter who owns Mm -hmm. the property. So they're complicated in some ways, but simple (laughs) in other ways, um, in that they primarily seek to prevent the land from being divided, so it can't be subdivided into many smaller residential lots. And they also restrict the type of development that can happen on those properties to only agricultural uses. So, um, again, my minor economics background would say that um, you're moving from highest and best use kind of pricing and perhaps taxation to um, a, a taxation system and a, a value system that says, okay, it's it's going to be farmland. It's not going to be hotels. Exactly. Right. So typically they do reduce the market value of mm-hmm. properties once they've been protected because you've removed the ability to develop it mm-hmm. for other purposes. And what does that do for the farmer or the farmland, basically? For the farmer, as I mentioned, it does make it easier for them to purchase it when it's coming around for sale um, because you are not needing to pay development prices in order to acquire farmland. So it does make it more affordable. Mm -hmm. And I suppose uh, if if the farmer goes into this, um, like somebody that's involved in tree growth or land conservation, there's a reduction, um, potential reduction in property taxes. Not necessarily. No? No. Um, So currently there is no statewide mandate that says land that has been protected with a conservation easement should be valued any differently than Mm -hmm. land that does not have a conservation easement on it unless you have an open... I'm sorry, open space? For, forever wild okay. conservation easement yeah. on the property and it's enrolled in open space. Okay. So as far as I know, um, anyone who's interested in trying to seek a reduction in their property values because they have protected their land would need to discuss that with their town uh-huh. um, and the town would ultimately make the decision about whether or not that is appropriate. Right. 
Right. So um, that's one aspect. Um, what are some of the other programmatic aspects of, of Maine Farmland Trust that you want to focus on today? We also uh, work on farm viability issues, so assisting farmers with maintaining um, or attaining commercial viability. And we do that through technical assistance and training and support with business planning assistance. Our Farming for Wholesale program is our technical assistance and training program that allows and supports, um, I should say supports, farmers who are interested in either breaking into wholesale markets or increasing their sales to wholesale markets get the acumen that they need in order to be successful in Mm. selling to those markets. Mm. We do an awful lot of business planning assistance um, for farmers who are making changes to their business um, or trying to get financing for a loan to purchase a farm property. It really sort of runs the gamut in Mm. terms of what we're offering in business Mm. planning assistance support. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking about farms and food systems. Uh, the work of Maine Farmland Trust in the studio with us are Amanda Beal, president of Maine Farmland Trust, and Erica Buswell, who's vice president of programs at Maine Farmland Trust. Um, Eleanor Kenny is a, a board member, um, and we're going to talk with one of the farmers that uh, Maine Farmland Trust um, has assisted in a, in a few minutes. But um, uh, Eleanor, you this notion of, of, of local agriculture as part of the economic system is what motivated you. Say a little bit more about that. Right, I will. Um, so the word kind of affordable has come up a couple times, and it's a challenging word because MFT does try to hold farmland at farmland prices, but farming is a very tough business economically. And um, one of the networks that I bring to the board, so board members, we all have different hats that we wear and we have we're really a working board we have a lot of farmers i like to say we have more farmers and financiers (laughs) on the board um and one of the networks i bring is is that of slow money maine Mm. so slow money maine our our, the tagline for slow money is investing as if food food farms and fertility really mattered and um, we're really focused on helping capitalize farms and food businesses because access to capital has been a really critical issue in maine and um so it's it's even even if the land value has been reduced or held at a farmland value because it has an easement on it, it still can be tough for farmers mm-hmm. to access the land as well as to access working capital. Um, so in Slow Money, we really focus on how to connect those resources uh, to the farmers and food businesses through bringing in investors, through finding channels for moving grant money. Um, to local food businesses. So it's it's a movement that's been very active in Maine now for about as long as I've been on the board of Maine Farmland Trust and headed up by Bonnie Rukin, mm-hmm. our coordinator. Um, and all these efforts, to me, are really about thinking about what keeps Maine special. Mm. And that image of having communities with vibrant downtowns that then stop and transition into open farmland or forest land is something that still exists in Maine mm-hmm. and doesn't exist in so many other places. Mm. But it's an action, it's, it's a lot of work to maintain that. And so the farm viability piece is we're trying to conserve the land, but we're also trying to make it economically viable mm. and um, for farmers to purchase farms and to create, you know, run their businesses. Um, and a, a story I have that'll just kind of help bring in our next speaker as yeah. well as to talk about a, a piece of land in my community of Damascata. And uh, there was a 70-acre parcel that uh, turns out Walmart had an option on it, and they wanted to build a super center. 
And if you've been to Damascata, it has a very vibrant downtown with many locally owned businesses that still function. I mean, we have locally owned hardware and and locally owned grocery and bookstores and and, uh, so very thriving downtown. And there was a huge community opposition um, which I led with another woman named Jenny Mayer, and we ran a whole campaign, and we we prevented Walmart from building in our community and from a number of adjacent communities. It was a multi-town, a multi-town um, effort, and so you know that was very much about okay, we we don't want this kind of development, but it was a very positive thinking about what do we want, what kind mm. of vision do we have for our town and for our community, and the sort of next level of that. Um, was looking at that property and thinking about, you know, it was a real, it was an anchor property of, of the gateway to our town on the north side of Damrascata. And um, so what we did is we uh, approached Maine Farmland Trust and the Damrascata River Association and talked about preserving this piece of land forever mm. and having it be accessible as a working farm. And that's what happened. And Maine Farmland Trust um, bought the property and uh, DRA originally held well, the easement was not put on it right away, correct, Erica? Yeah, we just placed the easement yeah. on it um, at the earlier at the this. close, right? Yeah. So, you know, but the land was bought by Maine Farmland Trust. It was protected, and then a wonderful local farm started leasing that property. And we're going to get to talk to Brady Hatch of Morning Dew Farm, who has been about what the yes is and what the future is for right. that property. Well, we can bring Brady right into the conversation. She's on the line. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Brady. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Well, glad to have you here. Um, start, if you would, but just by describing um, what a visitor might see um, in this season, and then we'll talk about the growing season. What, what's going on at the farm right now? Well, um, right now I'm sitting at my computer working on spreadsheets and seed orders um, <laughs> and replacing the furnace for our greenhouse, which pooped out shortly after we turned it on last week. Um, but right now the field that Eleanor has been describing um, is covered in snow. We've got our hoop houses out there. We've got the turkey tractors that are apprentices from last year set up out there ready for new poults next spring. And, yeah, it's just snowy. We see deer coming through and browsing on the, the remains of the kale plants. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how would that transform to, to the, the busiest season? What would we see, who would we see on the farm in, in uh, the, the uh, harvest season? Sure. Well, my husband and I run the farm together, and every year we get a crop of apprentices to come out and learn and work with us. Um, we have a couple of full-time employees, and now that we have a stronger land base, we're working on cultivating some more part-time and seasonal people who come out with us as well, sometimes volunteers. Um, last summer, the or I guess it was late spring, uh, the local high school kids came out and did a farm-slash-art project of collecting rocks with us and building kerns. Um, <laughs> That's and, great. Great. Uh, Tom Sawyer. Yeah. Tom Sawyer with the, with the, the, the whitewashed fence. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, they, they really they, they liked picking rocks more than they liked listening to me talk about active biological <laughs> microbial communities in the soil. Um, but, yeah, that's, and then I had people, you know, talking to me in town because it is such a visible property, as Eleanor was saying. It's really the gateway. People were saying, I saw so many people out there. What was going on? So we had an opportunity to talk about the project. And, um, yeah, so mm. it, just, it gets greener. People are often asking me what's growing out there, especially when it melts. Um, like Eleanor said, we've been leasing it for a few years, which was such a great opportunity to get to know the property before uh, committing to ownership. 
and you know they'll they'll see the remnants of the year before crops and say, "Are you already growing something? What is that out there?" Sure. Um, yeah, it's been a it's been a good mechanism for talking about agriculture with people on a day to day basis. How did you and your husband come to to want to, wanting to grow things? Um, well, we like to eat things, so that's <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the primary motivators. Sure. Um, and we wanted to do something that felt like it mattered, and you know, a way to interact with our community that felt positive. And farming just we found our way into it. Mm. Um, it checked those boxes for us, and it turns out that once we started doing it, we liked it. So. And you've evolved kind of, as you say, leasing first and then uh, recent purchase. Have you evolved some kind of specializations on your farm? What, what, um, what are you most proud of in terms of your work? Um, most proud of? <laughs> well, maybe you've, you've <laughs> developed some specialization as, as to how you're doing um, local agriculture. Just talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, I'm proud of the scale of our diversity, um, both in terms of our markets and the crops that we grow, and that we're able to be interacting with young people who have interest in farming um, and, you know, share what we're doing with them and also, you know, share it with our community members. Um, my, I like to tell the story of when I go into the grocery store, if I come back to the car quickly, my daughter says, oh, good, you didn't run into anybody you knew. Um, <laughs> because she's so used to sure. you know, me stopping and talking to people about it. So I feel like that both the just community connections and the local economic multiplier effect that comes from you know living and shopping where we farm is something that I was looking for, and it's it's really there. And like Eleanor was saying, our where we live, you know, we've got a butcher shop, we've got a fish store, we've got the hardware stores. Like it really is that there is that potential for things to just build in place. Um, and for people to feel like their interactions matter and their economic actions matter. Mm. Um, so it's interesting. And really tasty carrots. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting. That field grows exceptionally delicious carrots. I don't know what it is. They're uh, better than any carrots we grow anywhere else. Okay. And, um, and is that um, both soil and what you've uh, amended the soil with? Do you, th- do you suppose? I think it's a pre existing condition. I, uh-huh. I'm, I think that there's a research project there to. <laughs> try to identify the magic ingredient for sweet carrots. Well, you strike me, and, and I know so many other um, younger farmers who um, break the mold of the taciturn farmer who just wants to grow things. Um, and that's a really refreshing change because if we can talk about what we're doing with the excitement that you express, um, it's going to make a real difference in our, in our community. So thanks for that good work. Um, specifically, um, how, did, how did you work with Maine Farmland Trust? Did they come to you? Did you co- come to them? How did you make those arrangements? Um, that's a good question. We originally were utilizing their FarmLink listing. Um, and we went to a FarmLink mixer when they were doing kind of a speed dating of land seekers and land owners. Um, and we had a couple of false starts in that department, but we saw what was going. We were involved with the, the size pack campaign um, that Eleanor mentioned when Walmart was having the option on the land and kind of had our eye on it. And we were in a unique position because we have a place to live in a small area of production, and we were looking for something in our community that could supplement that to meet the local demand for what we were doing. Um, And I think we originally asked if we could lease the property um, and 
my husband's idea was that we would, you know, make it look more attractive to somebody else, <laughs> actually, uh-huh. um, um, show that it could be a working farm. And I think that not so secretly Farmland Trust hoped that we would really like it and want to stay. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, um, so I'm happy to say that um, we came around to that notion. But they were really both patient and creative um, in working with us. And I heard someone use the word dedicated to the viability of the farms, and I really, that was there, you know, in terms of establishing partnerships with Slow Money Maine and, you know, the Morris Farm in Wiscasset became involved and the DRA, the Demerstata River Association, like that collaborative effort um, really sprung from their dedication to working with us and making it a good fit. Um, so, yeah, it was a long process. The easement in particular, I learned a lot about um, legalese and process, but it was all worth it in the end, I think. Would you, any of our guests here in the studio like to add anything or ask a question? Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to, this is Eleanor, I just want to point to how creative young farmers need to be now because the the model of the multi-generational farm is not necessarily the model anymore. We do still have some of that in Maine, but, you know, it was, it was a very collaborative effort to get Brady and Brendan on that land and it involved them launching an Indiegogo campaign, which brought in a lot of community support and they were able to tap in the, the big network that they built through their CSA shares and their, their supplying to restaurants and stores. And there was a grant com- component that I and so many Maine facilitated using Morris Farm Trust as a local nonprofit entity. Um, and so it was fitting together these dif- different pieces to put together a whole that benefited Morning Dew Farm, but really benefited the whole community. Um, and and Brady hasn't mentioned it, but they are one of the anchor farms for our community. I mean, they are they supply a, a number of the businesses and are just essential at the farmers markets. And and um, you know we're we're so happy they're there. Great. Anything else um, from our guests in the studio? Well, Brady, we'll let you get back to your spreadsheets. I'm sure you're anxious <laughs> to do that. But thanks so much for joining us and telling your story. Thank you. Brady Hatch of Morning Dew Farm. She works that with her husband, Brendan McQuillan. Um, where you turn to talk of the towns. We're talking about farms and food systems, the work of Maine Farmland Trust. Um, still here in the studio, we're glad to say. Eleanor Kennedy, you've just heard from a board member for Maine Farmland Trust. Erica Buswell, Vice President for Programs, and er- Amanda Beal, uh, President of Mar- Maine Farmland Trust. We'll open up our phone line, so if you, as a listener, have your own experience to share or questions for our guests, please give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. Um, well, where do, we, where do we want to take this um, this conversation now? Um, the, the, the work of working with individual farms, are there programmatic aspects of, of Maine Farmland Trust that you'd like to highlight? Uh, well, Erica? I think uh, in the Morning Dew Farm speaks to this example, but collaboration is a very important part of our work. I mean, we are talking about trying to rebuild the food system for the entire state of Maine, right. which is a big ask of any organization or agency, no matter how many resources you have behind you. So our land protection work in this particular project, working with the Amerscotta River Association, both to secure the community support to make this project possible, as well as their willingness to ultimately hold and steward that conservation easement over the long term. You know, we really couldn't have done that project without them. And mm-hmm. there are so many land protection projects like that. But I think the the importance of collaborating on farmland access with entities like Slow Money Maine and Farm Service Agency and the other great programs out there that 
hold some piece of what is a very complicated process of trying sure. to get a farmer on land. You know, we really do all have to be working together and keeping the farmer's best interests at heart as we figure out what the strategy is for addressing access and viability issues. Sure. So that notion of a, of a, it takes a village to raise a child, it takes many, many aspects to protect a farm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I also think that in our farm viability program, we, we sh- there are a lot of other collaborations that, uh, that come through as well. We work with a number of different organizations with our Farming for Wholesale um, program, for example. You know, we work with MOFCA and Cooperative Extension and CEI and all of these different um, mm. really important organizations throughout the state in a lot of our different uh, types of programming that we do. Mm. We're going to come back in just a minute um, to ask m- more about what a food system looks like or what it could look like um, in just a minute. But first, we have a phone call from Brooklyn. Paula is on the line. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, yes, I'm kind of in the predicament of I have a place that I would love to see remain a farm. I spent 30 years there just basically trying to grow my own food and keep the house from falling down and keep the acreage mowed and kind of lost the battle. But it's like a beautiful place, and it had it was blueberries. And the thing is, it's like to fix the house is going to be like, hundred thousand dollars we lost the barn because we couldn't afford to rebuild it so i just have no idea how anyone could afford it and i could probably go down in price some but i just bought another house i've moved down the road and i have about a year to get the rest of my stuff out of there and i don't know where to start <laughs> well, you're, you're you're asking some folks who might be able to help. Um, why don't we get some general answers, and then um, certainly um, they can follow up. Um, Maine Farmland Trust, you pro- probably can find that on the, on the web or so on. But let's get some general answers um, to that kind of predicament. Uh, thanks for your call, Paula. Hi, Paula. This is Erica, and I would say maybe as step number one is just start making people aware that you have this property that is available and sort of exploring every avenue you possibly can to get that word out there. So our main farm link program can certainly help you to advertise that the property is available. If you want to give us a call, we'll walk you through that process. But I would also say it's it's sort of startling how much word of mouth plays into farmland access successes. So tell everybody in your community that you have this land to make available. Um, and that you want to keep it as farmland. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and you might just be surprised to discover someone who is looking for the exact piece of land that you are ready to turn over. Great. And, and Maine farmland, and then you also have a kind of a, a realty kind of um, thing as well. Is that fit, those fit together? They could potentially. Uh-huh. So uh, Maine Farms Realty is a subsidiary of Maine Farmland Trust, but it is a, a real estate brokerage um, that both represents Maine Farmland Trust interests when we're trying to acquire or sell farmland through our Buy, Protect, Sell program. But um, we can also provide buyer's broker services. So um, if Paula gets her farm listed on Maine Real Estate Network or um, through some other real estate broker, our broker is potentially going to be bringing clients mm-hmm. so again um, we'll list it at the end of the program but just for people like paula and, and and others what's the contact information for maine farmland trust what's the best way for them to to reach you you folks you can give us a call at 207-338-6575 or send an email to info at org. 
great, great. Um, again, we're talking about um, farms and farms uh, food systems with our guests. Um, give us a call if you've got questions or comments, one 625 9378 Amanda, if you could kind of um, sketch out for us what a, a food system is and, and how's the health of Maine's food system and what it might look like. That's a big, that's a big <laughs> question. Yeah, but In 30 um, seconds or yeah, less. Yeah, <laughs> not 30 seconds or less. Uh, well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a food system is basically everything that it takes to get from, you know, production to having food on your plate in in, whether it's in a restaurant or in an institution or in your home. Um, It's sort of the whole chain of events that needs to happen there. And so, you know, we about 90 percent of the food that we eat here in Maine comes from elsewhere. It comes from outside the state. And there has been, you know, real interest, not just from Maine Farmland Trust, but from lots of um, consumers and other other organizations in uh, working to relocalize or regionalize our food system as a way to sort of get more control over some of the the challenges, the externalities, um, some of the unseen um, uh, sort of problems that can come up when we're working with or we're engaged in a food system that has components that are far away and we can't see them. So, you know, we all have heard about places where there's been, you know, a lot of pollution in waterways like the Chesapeake Bay and the Gulf of Mexico because of certain practices or intensification of agriculture. We've also heard about human rights exploitation in the food system. And when our food system is far away from us or when we're mm. we're purchasing food that comes from elsewhere and we can't see that, it's really hard to know how to make good decisions. And so one of the things that, you know, bringing our food system and our capacity to feed ourselves closer to home is that it gives us that visibility. It gives us the opportunity to see what our food system looks like and also to participate in supporting the rebuilding of infrastructure, supporting farmland access, supporting viability of farms. Um, and the same goes on the seafood side of the equation, which a lot of times people don't think about. We, we are always talking about agriculture when we're talking about the food system, but there is this other really important side to our food system, especially here in Maine. Mm. So you, Eleanor, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to add that, you know, since the 1950s, the United States has been consolidizing and consolidating and industrializing our food system. And we're now trying to kind of unwind that because that food system has externalized a lot of environmental cost and human cost, as Amanda was saying. And so for us, the local food movement is much more based on small community-scale businesses. We're trying to rebuild ag in the middle, which is what we're trying to do with our wholesale programs where you have farms that can operate at a scale that can supply schools and hospitals and other institutions. Um, But we're having to develop a whole local food economy that is in competition with an industrialized consolidated system that is also subsidized by our tax dollars. So it's a it's a real economic challenge and but it's such an important counter because mm-hmm. if we want to Im- have the values of of clean environment, living wage, food access, I mean resilient communities, so many of our values are represented in working on a local food system in a context of global climate change. Sure. So it's just critical that we do that kind of work at the community and state level. Yeah. Amanda? Yeah, I, I just wanted to add that, you know, I, I when we're talking about sort of the relocalization, re-regionalization of uh, our food system, 
That doesn't mean that we don't want to participate in broader markets. There are just certain values that we want to make sure are embedded in the transactions that we do engage in that are not extractive and um, pulling resources away from our farmers and our fishermen. Um, And, you know, we work with all scales of farmers. We work with all types of farmers um, working in different markets. And, you know, these farmers are very hardworking and they're innovative and they they just experience challenges oftentimes, as I said before, that are sort of beyond their grasp. And so we want to try to sort of bring some of that, that control and that benefit back so that they are being rewarded for the work that they're doing at a level that is fair. Mm. I often say that um, we have, have a, we've inherited um, an economic and political system um, that um, – is basically supporting capitalism, and if we want to change what we what we have, we have to interfere with that that system. And all of the things you're describing are interfering with the normal capitalistic system. And I mean, it's 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 what we have to do. What we have to do. I'll list our phone number one more time because perhaps we have some listeners who have some comments or questions. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Give us a call here on Talk of the Towns as we talk about farms and food systems. Um, Amanda, what could our food system in Maine look like? What's the potential? Yeah, well, actually, uh, a few years ago, I was involved in a project with a number of different folks around New England, and we did some research, and we also went out and got a lot of public feedback, talked to lots of consumer groups and farmers and, and, you know, organizations that support agriculture and fisheries, and um, and we ended up, after a three-year period of time, putting out a report called a New England Food Vision. And so in the process, we really tried to look at, given our natural resource base in New England, given you know population projections, given a whole number of different factors, what is the capacity for New England to feed itself if we really wanted to? to put effort into to going in that direction. And we came up with, you know, a few different scenarios and sort of the middle of the road one was, you know, by 2050, we really could be producing about 50% of the food that we consume here in New England. And we could be doing that in a way that is sustainable, in a way that creates, you know, a good value for consumers and a fair price for farmers. Um, but there's a lot of work to do in order to get there. Mm. And so, you know, I've been engaged in conversations regionally about how do you move in that direction. But one of the things that I bring to that conversation, and I say it often and loudly, is that when you think about the the productive farm land base and when you think about where a lot of that production would need to come from in order to make that vision happen, it's Maine. And we are critically important to that vision. We're critically important to the food security of the New England region and elsewhere. Um, And so I think that just elevates the importance of the work that we're trying to do here uh, because we are we're we just play such an important role in in the region's food production. So we've got we've got the the key asset and that's a land base. And um, some would say the lack of um, alternative development that's really putting pressure on that land base. What what other advantages um, does Maine have uh, versus the rest of New England that we ought to be capitalizing on or, or taking advantage of? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say there's a lack of development okay. pressure yeah. for sure. Um, it's it's definitely out there, and 
Um, other things that we have, I mean, we have a knowledge base here. We have farmers that know how to grow food and know how to do it really well. And so it's exciting to see new people being attracted to farming because we have some really great networks here, um, great agricultural networks, great farmer networks. Um, we have very supportive organizations, I was told, by a, a farmer, a young farmer that has come here recently to Maine to look into farming here, that he was from a, 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 a community in the Midwest. He grew up in a farming family. He's been around farms all his life, and he has never seen the kind of support here in Maine that he sees coming from consumers and coming from organizations like MFT and others mm. who are really here to work in service to making sure that they're successful. Mm. And as we heard um, from Brady, um, she said that farming ticked a couple boxes, and it's, it's really a, a desire to do something productive and to give back to the community in some meaningful way. That's a that's a, a really amazing thing. And it's so exciting to hear these young farmers. And Maine has, as you said, the, the average age of Maine farmers is, is trending downward because of this kind of new inward migration and, and uh, excitement. Eleanor. Well, and, and to pick, off, uh, pick up on something Amanda was talking about, about expanding markets, mm. where one of the ways that we're helping farms and food businesses to be successful is to both supply their local community, but also look beyond Maine to New England. And there's some farms we're working with, for instance, in Washington County, quite remote, um, don't have a large population base, um, so they can't just sell their goods in Washington County. And one of the ways we can support them is through Maine Farmland Trust and Slow Money, we're partnering with some of these farms around how they can access the kind of equipment or processing that they need. So be it USDA certification for a processing plant or ability to pasteurize um, so that their product is then, um, they can then sell it across state lines. Mm -hmm. So again, thinking of Maine as a land base, thinking of the farmers as the, the knowledge base and helping them to expand that so that they can think about serving Maine's community, but also the broader community mm -hmm. with their goods. Mm -hmm. what's, what's the average uh, difference between Maine's population and the rest of New England? We've got a, a little over 1.3 million or something like that. Any idea of what the rest of New England, you know, in terms of that market, it's a huge market. Yeah, there are some very uh, population-dense areas uh, throughout southern New England, mm -hmm. and, and, and there are also places where they have less land available to them mm -hmm. as well. I would say, too, like we shouldn't underestimate the cultural innovation and creativity and um, sort of our cultural heritage here, like we're of bootstrapping. Uh -huh. So we're trying to relocalize our food system. There's not a roadmap for that. And we're sort of trying to figure it out as we go because we we have become sort of disconnected from that time and place in history when the connections were more apparent and the markets were more local. Mm. Um, and we have lost a little bit of the infrastructure that we had in the earlier part of the, the 20th century that we are also trying to rebuild at the same time. And it just feels like this is a place where everybody is pulling together, the farmers, those who want to support them, and the consumers to make this the kind of food system that benefits all of us. Amanda? Yeah, and I think the other thing I don't want us to underestimate is, you know, we talk a lot about young farmers, but some of the new farmers that are coming to uh, coming to us and coming to other organizations for support to get started in farming are not 
not well. I want to be careful about how <laughs> right, I say right. this, but they're not. You know, they're not all in their twenties uh-huh. and early thirties. Um, but they're looking at this as sort of a second career, and they're coming with you know knowledge from other experiences, mm-hmm. and that's that's really rich too. And and also again, not to underestimate how absolutely you know beneficial it is, and how lucky we are to have older generation farmers with all of this knowledge who are just ready to pass it along, and uh, whether it's to somebody who's coming into farming not through having grown up in a farming family or whether it's an intergenerational transfer within a farming family. We have all of this diversity Mm. here, and that Mm. that makes what we're trying to do here, I think, really rich. Mm. Uh, Eleanor, you mentioned um, a place like Washington County or or, or Aroostook County, um, distant from their markets, and and what kinds of products might they be able to get to um, markets in Boston or or, um, Portland or Portsmouth? What kinds of crops? What kinds of things? Do you have some sense of what what those are? Well, I have an example in Tide Mill Organic Farm where we've been involved with – Solmoney has been working closely with them for a number of years now around expanding their chicken growing and processing. And so they are going to be seeking state inspection but then looking ahead to USDA inspection. Mm. So, again, that their product can go farther. Um, and so there's a kind of a process of, of assessing new markets and what they need. And, and that, that's been also an effort of, I mean, we've used a variety of financial tools to support that process where they've both benefited from TIF grant money, TIF loans, as well as from slow money grants and loans. So it's been, you know, a lot of, it's, it's hard for a business sometimes to do that level of expansion without some support on the capital sure, side. Sure. Um, and that's been really important. And, and I mean, last time I was here, it was as an investor in Moo Milk. Right. Um, right. And Moo Milk, you know, again, a, a group of 10, 11 dairy farmers in Aroostook and Washington counties lost uh, their contract. And um, they were faced with having no one to buy their milk. And so they formed their own cooperative. And Moo Milk didn't ultimately succeed. Uh, as an economic venture on its own, but it was the bridge mm. um, that allowed those dairy farmers to keep operating and um, to get through that that period of years where then the organic market started to grow and develop. And once um, when Moo Milk failed, they all did sign with other other. Uh, with Organic Valley and with Horizon, and uh, now Horizon's pulling out of Washington County, so we're 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 faced with some of those challenges again. So I feel like you, kind of, you know, it's it's never easy, mm. um, but we just have to keep sticking with it and and being creative. Mm-hmm. Maine has a as a um, a niche um, kind of brand. Um, Maine products are are seen as v- good value, and it seems like f- our food system can take advantage of that. Um, any any you know, glimmers of hope in, in using that Maine kind of uh, value that, that you're seeing? Well, I'd like to mention that Maine has the highest per capita rate of cheesemakers uh-huh. uh, in the country. Yeah. And I think our cheese is a, a, a really starting to be recognized. I mean, there's the traditional blueberries and potatoes uh-huh. and lobster, but I think we're starting to be recognized as a much more diverse food state uh-huh. than yeah. that. Yeah, I, I, this is Amanda. I would say that, you know, I think people outside of Maine certainly recognize that we have great food here, and that's part of what's driving our thriving tourist industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we need to get past this this thought that, 
you know, a lot of people talk about Portland as having all of this great food and all these mm. beverages, but it's, you know, it's moving throughout Maine. I mean, I go into rural communities and I see um, signs of that all over the place, really good food that, you know, restaurants that are purchasing from local farmers and local fishermen and a real commitment to to sort of bringing these values and bringing this benefit and in, into communities that are not just Portland, but all up and down the state of Maine. Mm. We've got time for one or two um, short phone calls, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. as we talk about farms and food systems. Um, Amanda, we've, we've seen that, and all of you, um, we have something called a cheap food policy in the United States, and it's been there since probably the, the 40s or perhaps um, earlier as, as government played a larger and larger role in, in uh, supporting agriculture, commodity agriculture. Tell us about that cheap food policy. You've alluded to it in terms of the externalities, the things that our system really doesn't account for, environmental or human uh, kinds of things. But what is the cheap food system and how might we get beyond that? Yeah, well, I think it's just really based on, you know, in some ways it's based on this this challenge that people don't, there are so few people in our country now as, you know, it's different from decades ago where many people were engaged in farming in some way. And there is such a small percentage of people at this point that are engaged in farming that a lot of people have no idea how hard it is, Mm. how challenging it is to grow food. And also, also they don't really see the risk that our, our food producers take on to grow that food. And, and so with those things unseen, it's really hard to understand the value. And then when we have, you know, market distortions and subsidies and other kinds of mechanisms that are built into federal policy that make it also really tricky to understand how food is priced and, mm. and where those those calculations come from. When you walk into the store and you see, oh, a locally produced chicken is, you know, maybe a third more expensive or even more than something I can get from wherever that's sitting on the grocery store shelf. You, you're making those economic decisions in that in that place and time with just looking at those price points and mm. without the information about why is there such a big difference. Mm-hmm. So if if we're a consumer, um, and we all are, we're all eating food, um, what should we take into account when we go into the grocery store and, and look at that? price differentiation, um, the, the chicken that's on the shelf that we don't know where it came from and we don't know how it was grown, and a local farm like Tide Mills, and the, we, we could go and visit that farm. We could know the, the farmers. What should the consumer be thinking about as they make the choice between, you know, the, the low-priced chicken and the, the chicken that's local? Um, how, how, how do we um, build that con- kind of consumer knowledge about what it, what it takes? Who wants to tackle that? Well, I think the knowledge is building if you Uh look at the huge expansion of farmers markets and CSAs in the state. I mean, huge upward trajectory. Um, It's been a real success story, but it still doesn't reach the majority of Mainers. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, the larger grocery stores are carrying more and more local. I think that the the consciousness that when you buy local, first of all, the quality's going to be better. It's going to be a fresher, you know, grown grown home product. Um, I think there is awareness, growing awareness about some of the environmental costs. I mean, if people haven't heard about the hog farms in North Carolina, they should know about them, you know, and what the water quality costs of those are. And when you concentrate that much animal and manure in one place. Um, I think that it's just, I mean, one thing that I love about MFT is that we really think not just about 
getting farmers on the land, but helping build the culture again. I mean, we have a gallery and, a, and an art center with programs with artists, and we think about, you know, we have a journal, you know, think about just spreading interest in farming and, and awareness of farming and all the benefits that it brings, whether they're environmental and, 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 and consciousness around local dollars being spent right. in local communities. I mean, when I led the Walmart campaign, that was it was a lot about that and mm-hmm. about the multiplier effect, as, as Erica mentioned, and how your dollars are staying home and benefiting other local businesses and not just being exported out of state and out of country. Mm. Um, so I think that is a critical piece. But we still have a lot more work to do. We've, we've done work on affordability where now a lot of farmers markets can accept EBTs. So that's been a critical piece. Um, and we've had matching programs so that those dollars are extended sometimes twice as far to encourage um, people to buy uh, local fruits and vegetables. So again, trying to make the local food system broadly accessible is is something that's going to take a continual attention mm. and work to mm. make happen. Mm. Yeah, and I, I just want to add another real good sign that, that we're heading in the right direction. Um, I just want to commend the University of Maine. Um, they made a commitment to trying to uh, procure 20% of the food that they serve by 2020, and they have already surpassed that goal. They're already oh, at 23. percent It is. It's phenomenal. It's great, and um, and I know that they're really motivated to keep going further. And uh, and I also want to say that there are a number of colleges throughout Maine that have been um, making similar commitments and have been working toward that goal for a long time as well. So seeing institutions, colleges, hospitals really stepping forward and taking a lead in trying to source more locally. Um, partly as an economic strategy, also as a public health strategy. I think these are all really important things that we can be excited about. Mm. And 10 years ago, we probably wouldn't have been able to make that commitment um, at, at a university or hospital level because the capacity might not have been there. So it's right. it's inching things forward little bit by little bit on all the scales. Exactly. We It, it really is, you know, we have to keep working on the production side, the supply side, as well as, um, you know, creating that consumer demand and I think, I think we're we're heading in the right direction. Mm. Any last minute hopes that you have for the for the future? Each of you got a particular hope in terms of, of the programs or the system. Anything to add? I think we can do this. We Great. can rebuild the food system. <laughs> Great. Everybody has a part to play. Great. Great. Ellen, anything? Any last minute hopes? I guess I'm going to quote Judy Wicks, who started the first farm to table restaurant. Uh, in Philadelphia, and she loved to say that we can do business and do good. Great, great. Well, we've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of WERU's website. If you have comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. And tune in to our companion program, Coastal Conversations, with Natalie Springle of Humane Sea Grant. 10 to 11 on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnane House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, Amanda Beal, Erica Buswell, and Eleanor Kinney, and thanks also to Bree Hatch of Morning Dew Farm in Newcastle. Thanks to our underwriters, thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.
Support for WERU comes